I love how many babies we got running around here. I got three, and so uh, doing my part to grow the church, the kingdom of God, amen. Well, good morning, good morning. So glad uh, to be here with you again, week three, and uh, pretty excited. We had uh, a ton of help. Thank you to everyone who came and helped us move all of our stuff in this week. Uh, we had some very, very heavy items that I said, hey, that goes there. And big, strong, burly men just grabbed and walked around with them and was amazing. I am officially, officially a Washingtonian again. And so pretty excited about that. I filled out my change of address. Yeah, I guess I don't have a driver's license yet. So I got to uh, I got to work on that here uh, pretty soon. I think I can still get my Oregon tax exempt, though. So I should maybe ride that out. No, I don't know. <laughs> so I'm sure I have everything in the house I need, right? And so uh, really excited about that. My family has felt so welcomed. Uh, many of you brought food already and things like that. And uh, it was just a huge, huge blessing. Um, not helping me get in shape, but that's totally okay. I am down with that. Actually, I was speaking uh, after service, I think with Ruth. I don't know if Ruth is in here. And she's the marathon runner. And she was telling me, you know, about all these distance runs. And I was like, I don't need to be able to run 26.2. But if I can run three. And at, the, and at the end of three, still climb a tree if I'm still in danger, that's the shape that I'm going for. And so she's like, I'll write you up a routine for that. So we'll, uh, we'll work on that. Pastor Mike wants to be able to run three miles and still escape a bear or whatever it is and climb up a tree. So that's kind of, uh, kind of what I was thinking about. Uh, for the last couple of weeks, we've been just having a conversation about what it means to kind of go on this journey together as we get to know one another uh, a little bit better. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the power of becoming coworkers, that something happens when you're with people and you work together with them. There is a bond. There is a unity that happens. There is a family kind of environment that begins to happen. And you know this because the people that you work with, you have shared experience, shared stories. You're pulling for them. You know, everyone has that one person at work that they can out to destroy them. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the coworkers and the difference between coworkers and customers. You feel different about customers than you do about coworkers. Coworkers are family. And uh, we're on this journey becoming co-workers. And last week, we talked about courage. And we talked about Peter getting out of the boat and the courage it must have taken to get out there. And even though to outward appearances, he may have seemed to falter and fail, at least he faltered and failed in the presence of Jesus. And that's where I want to get, where I'm out on the water face to face with Jesus. And so we talked about that. So this week I told you we'd get a little more practical. We talk a little bit about how to take some of these steps and how to do it. And so this morning I've titled the message. Um, it may be that somewhere in the back of my mind, there was this itch of some song from Crosby, Stills and Nash, Nash, but I didn't look up the song lyrics. So I didn't want to be responsible for them, but I, oh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I put the uh, title of the message is simply this love the one you're with with me all right do i have to sing it for you because i got no i won't do it <laughs> love the one you're with come on <laughs> so this morning we're going to talk about that and uh i'm so excited if you are new with us and you've just kind of discovered us i'm so glad that you're here welcome to celebration center i'm pretty new too so you're in the same boat with me so that's awesome we'll make friends together as we go on this journey and this is a great week for you to be here because we're going to talk about some really just practical steps on our journey with Jesus. And you're going to find out a little bit about what it's all about and who we are when we follow Jesus. If you've been on this journey forever and you're still sizing me up, this is a great week for you to be here because um, I'm just going to let you know what I think about some things. And so we're going to, we're going to kind of get to know each other a little bit better and keep going on this journey. 
But today we're going to talk about loving the one you're with. I was thinking about how many uh, questions Jesus answered as he was walking around doing public ministry in those three years. And I was trying to find like a, a comprehensive list of all the questions that he answered. And that got my wheels turning about, you know, I, I ever have that moment where you're just like, if I just wish that I could have one just, you know, Q&A session with Jesus and I would just ask him this one thing. Why don't you think for just a second, if you had a moment and you were face to face with Jesus and Jesus is like, okay, whatever you want to ask, this is your shot. You get one question. What would be your question? Think about it for a second. Don't yell at me. That's intimidating. Just think it inside your head. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> you got it? What you think your one big question would be? I was thinking about it for a little while. And I was thinking, man, you know, if I had one shot to ask Jesus one question, I think I would line up a little bit with one of the questions that we're going to get to today. And so, so I want you to think about it for a minute because throughout history in the scriptures, we've got this season of time in Jesus' life and we've got these questions that we're asking. Some of them were great questions. Some of them were amazing questions. One question that we're going to run into today that I think is one of the biggest questions, the most important questions anyone ever asked him was, hey, how do I get inherit eternal life? How do I get to heaven? That's a great question to ask Jesus. Now, there were some other questions that weren't so great. Believe it or not, someone asked him, hey, why don't your disciples wash their hands more? That's in the scripture. We're 2,000 years later. And this guy had a moment with Jesus to ask Jesus a question. And the recorded question that he asked Jesus was, you guys don't wash your hands enough. I don't know. I'm just telling you what the scriptures say. That's a good question. The disciples, they were hilarious. They asked some great questions. One of their questions, I'll paraphrase, was basically, hey, which of us is the most awesome? Which of us is the best? Who gets to sit closer to you in heaven? That's a bummer question to be in history recognized as that was the question you asked jesus so there's some good questions there's some bad ones some are funny i think um one of the questions that always cracks me up there's different versions of it throughout the scripture but essentially people who were church folks religious people constantly asking jesus why do you hang out with people who we think are losers why do you spend so much time with people who we don't think are good enough constantly recorded throughout scripture saying hey there's a better class of people you could hang out with jesus why do you choose that class maybe not some great questions but today the question that we're going to talk about jesus gets asked this question and i think it's powerful and i think it's profound and someone asked jesus hey jesus who's my neighbor who's my neighbor who's my neighbor jesus who's that person now neighbors are funny things I don't know if you have neighbors, maybe you live on acres and acres and acres and you don't have neighbors, but I've had many different neighbor experiences. I've moved around quite a bit, and so I've had some great neighbor experiences where we were buddies and I had some rough neighborhood experiences where it didn't work out so well. The first time I ever realized that I was actually someone's neighbor, I was um, talking to a board member at a church that I was working at, and he had pulled over to my house to drop something off, and he looked at my lawn and he saw a field of dandelions. And uh, I was a new homeowner for the first time, and I didn't know anything about maintaining a yard. And uh, so I would just mow the dandelions, and they'd come back and mow them, they'd come back. And then, you know, a couple weeks would go by, and they'd be taken over. And he said something to me. He's like, hey, Mike, you know, when you have a yard that looks like this, that's not being a very good neighbor. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah, you should care about that. If you want to have a good relationship with your neighbors, don't be that yard. And I was like, wow, never even occurred to me that I should care about. Some of you are that neighbor. Sorry, I'm just telling you what he told me. 
So <laughs> he's like, just care about that. If you go to my house right now, don't judge me. I just got there, okay? And so, <laughs> so that was funny. I remember the worst neighbor I ever saw. Um, I, I was living uh, as an intern for a year with a family, and across the street was the uh, administrator of our church. And his neighbor, so one street, one house over, was a bona fide hoarder, like the kind of hoarder that would get on a TV show. Like she didn't have garbage service the entire time she lived there. She would just throw things in the backyard, then throw a tarp over it, then throw things on top of that and throw another tarp over it. And so this was the house that, I mean, you could see through the windows. It was just filled with trash and garbage, the front yard, the backyard. There was about three abandoned cars that were filled with garbage. She just never had garbage service. It was, it was the house that, I mean, you could smell it when you were out front. It was just rough. You know, they had to involve the city and some things were going on. And I remember I was talking to my friend across the street. And he was, his face was already was upset because he had a big pine tree in his backyard. And his pine tree had dropped some pine cones, and some of them had fell on this lady's yard. And she had climbed out over the piles of garbage to chuck the pine cones back into his yard while his kids were playing back there. And he was so mad. He was like, I can't believe she's throwing pine cones in the yard at my kids. Went in. So, so, so we've had some, you know, I don't know if you've ever had a neighbor experience quite that bad, but that was the worst neighbor ex- experience that I had, uh, I had ever seen. It was really, really a tough thing. And there, you know, eventually I think some help came in and, and helped them clean it up. But, I, but that was a really, really bad neighbor experience. So I'm going to define neighbor for you. Not every neighbor is that, that horrible. Uh, Webster's Dictionary defines neighbor as a person who lives near another. A person or thing that is near another. One's fellow human being. A person who shows kindness or helpfulness towards his or her fellow humans to be a neighbor to someone who is in distress. What I love is that a neighbor is about proximity. It's about closeness. It's about how far away I am from someone. If you are in my circle, you have become my neighbor by nature of proximity. And when the scripture talks about neighbors, it always is talking about relationship with people who are in your proximity who's near to you who's close to you who's around you the scriptures care so much that we do relationships well do you notice that time and time again there's conversations about loving one another caring for one another having compassion on one another interacting with one another forgiving one another all of these things come time and time again through the scriptures because the scriptures care about relationships and relationships happen in proximity in closeness god really cares about relationship about proximity and about nearness. So I'm going to read to you today from the scriptures a story. And uh, this is a story about a guy who interacts with Jesus. And he leads with an amazing question, and he follows up with this neighbor question. I'm in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. You can follow along with me. I'll throw it on the board, I believe, for you. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. I'm reading the NIV, and it says this, Jesus is interacting with someone it says on one occasion an expert in the law read lawyer stood up to test jesus now think about that for just a moment he's about to ask an amazing question but his motive is very clear right from the beginning he's not looking for a genuine answer he's looking to start a debate he's a lawyer he wants to get into something legalistic his hope is to catch jesus maybe saying something inappropriate this is an expert in the law this is someone who studied you know i was thinking about how it must have been to be someone who 
grew up studying in that, in that culture uh, as a Pharisee, becoming an expert in the law. You've memorized the first five books of the Bible. You are an authority on everything about your culture. There's over 600 uh, laws that you have become responsible to influence and to uh, be an agent of correction to other people. And here comes Jesus, this carpenter's son from a humble background, who has become a, a, a rabbi, a teacher, who has authority and power. And I can just imagine you thinking, you know what? My study, my time, my work, my energy, I'm going to trip up Jesus. I'm going to catch him. I'm going to be the one that proves that this carpenter's son isn't what he says he is. And this is the attitude that Jesus is facing in this conversation. He's facing someone who's like, hey, I got one for you, Jesus. How about this? He says, teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the reason my heart breaks when I read this is, again, this is probably the greatest question you could ask Jesus. This is the question we should all be asking. This is the question that as we enter into a relationship with Jesus, it should be in our hearts and in our minds. God, what is my part in this? I see your part in this. I am hearing the story of your love on display. I'm hearing that you paid the price for my sin. I'm hearing that you, you, you stretched out on your arms on the cross and you submitted even though you were sinless, even though you were perfect, even though you didn't deserve it. You were found guilty so that I could be found not guilty. That's amazing. But what's my part in this? What do I have to do? What's expected of me? That's a phenomenal question. That's a great question to ask. We should all ask that question. It should stir in our hearts and our minds from time to time. What is our part in all this? What do we have left to do here? I often wonder sometimes why when we make a decision for Jesus, Jesus just doesn't just take us right up to heaven so we have no chance to blow it anymore. Right? Wouldn't that be nice? It's like, God, come into my heart. I, I, I put you first. I repent of my sin and just... Just take us off the earth like, you know, we made it. But he leaves us here. Why? What do I have to do? What's expected of me? What's my role? What's my purpose? Why did you leave me here, Jesus? This world is not that awesome. Here's this guy, and he's like, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers his attitude with a question i wouldn't even say question his attitude his test and he says hey what's written in the law how do you read it this guy's an expert he's like hey you're the lawyer you're asking me for the list of what to do to be found not guilty what's in the law what does it say how do you read it and then he answers he says well love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. He crushes this answer. I mean, this is like the Sunday school answer. This guy is studied up. Like, he has this down. He knows those 617 laws can all be kind of com combined into this. It's actually a version of the Shema, which in the Hebrew culture was a prayer that they would say every morning and every night. Twice a day, they would repeat this prayer. I'll give you kind of the English version of it. I thought about trying to learn the Hebrew version of it, and then I thought I would humiliate myself. And so I thought I would just read the, uh, the English translation of the Shema. But it's essentially taken from Deuteronomy. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Oh, that's good. 
and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is a declaration of prayer that in their culture they would say, at least twice a day, morning and night. Time and time again in Scripture, we see the, their culture, uh, the Hebrew culture, holding on to this prayer. Believe it or not, this is, this is what Daniel was essentially thrown into the, not the lion's den for refusing to stop saying this prayer, for refusing to stop declaring God's law and saying, I'm going com- to uh, honor his commandments, and I'm going to write these things down, and I'm going to pass them on to the next generation. He did it three times a day, which is an, an interesting angle, but, but he was... Time and time, time again. So here's this guy from a Hebrew culture who knows the law, who knows what's expected of him. And Jesus says, well, how do you read the law? What are you supposed to do? And he essentially paraphrases the Shema. And he says, hey, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Ah, crushes it. <clears throat> Got it. Jesus, that's what you're looking for, right? And then he's looking for the, for the yes from Jesus. And Jesus gives it to him with a caveat. Verse 28. He says, hey, this is Jesus. You have answered correctly. Now, you ever sat down with someone, and uh, this happens to me from time to time. Maybe it just happens to me. And you're talking about something spiritual. You're talking about something with God. And someone makes a reference to, like, a, a Bible verse or something like that. And they're like, you know the one. And you're like, yeah, I know the one, but you're not really sure. You're like, oh, keep going, and maybe it'll come back to me. You know, you're trying to recall the verse, and you feel like it's a quick pop quiz, and like your whole faith and spirituality is on the line. You know this one verse that this guy obviously has memorized, but you may not have memorized, and it's just kind of hanging out there, and you're feeling that pressure. Am I the only one that ever feels that? All right, I feel that from time to time. All right, so you guys are with me on that. So I can imagine this guy's like, oh, good, he asked me one I know. I got this one down. And he answers the question profoundly. He says, hey, this whole thing boils down to relationship. I love God, and I love my neighbor. And Jesus says, nailed it. And you can imagine, just like this flood of relief. You've answered it correctly, Jesus replied. And then he says this. He says, do this, and you will live. Now, that's where this starts to break down for me. Because I can know something, but do I do it? He's just described loving God completely, putting God first completely, all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength. I don't know about you, but if that's the bar just on loving God, that's probably a little too high. I probably fail that bar as more often than I succeeded, right? Not with all, because you know what happens? Mike gets in there somewhere. Where's Mike? Where's what I want and what I need and what I'm frustrated about? Where's the piece of me that gets in there? And so Jesus is like, you nailed it. But can you do it? And not only that, love your neighbor as yourself. Now listen, there is a lot of people that I love in this earth. There's a few that I would even lay down my life for if push came to shove. But just loving anyone who's in proximity as much as I love myself, get out of here. That's a nice thing to say, right? That makes a good T-shirt, right? A bumper sticker. It's great in a worship song. 
But how am I supposed to actually do that, Jesus? And I can just imagine this guy. He's got the Sunday school answer. He crushes it. And then Jesus' follow-up is put action to the answer and do it. So no wonder why his next question is the profound question we're going to talk about today. Uh, uh, excuse me, <laughs> Jesus, pardon me. Wait a second. I got the whole I answered correctly thing. And, you know, high five for that. I nailed it, right? You just threw some big heavy stuff on the end of this and said, actually do it. Now, he's a lawyer. And so probably true to form. I don't know if there's any lawyers in the room so I can talk smack about lawyers. And if you're a lawyer, tell me afterwards. I'll stop doing it. Um, <laughs> don't tell me now. But, you know, true to form. He wants to get the details right so he can figure out how to do the minimum possible and still be okay. What is the minimum requirement here and still be okay? And we do the same thing. You're all lawyers in your heart anyways, right? What's the bare minimum I can do? What's the least amount of energy, of effort, of sacrifice, of work, of commitment, of love, of compassion, whatever it is? What's the bottom amount that's required of me, Jesus, so that I can nail this? Because I nailed the answer, I know it, how do I do it? And who's my neighbor? I was thinking about how, in that context, what a horrible question. To ask the who question, right? The how question would have been great here. Jesus, how do I do that? That would have been a sincere question. That's an amazing question. That's the question I want to ask and answer, hopefully somewhat today. I care about that question. Jesus, I get that that's okay, but how? That would have been an amazing question. The why question would have been fair. Jesus, why? Why is that important? Why is that important to you? Why should that be important to me? That's fair. It's kind of arrogant, but it's fair. At least it's a good question. The when. The when question would have been amazing. Do I do it all the time? Sometimes? Now and then? Every once in a while? Give me some like, give me a little bit of the when. When do I need to have those eyes? When do I have to be engaged? When do I have to be paying attention? That would have been a phenomenal question. But you know what the who question is? The who question is, who should I care about? Who is worth that kind of work? Who deserves that kind of love? The who question is a horrible question to ask right there. And I think that's why he gets the answer that he gets from Jesus. Because Jesus is so, so frustrated in these interactions of questions about why do you love them? Why do you hang with them? Why do you care about them? The, the who question is driving him crazy because there's been this sense of the only people who deserve grace and mercy are people who are living like they deserve grace and mercy, not people who are living like they need grace and mercy. And so the who question prompts this story. And I love that Jesus is just a great storyteller. Now, I notice that it doesn't say parable here. He just tells it as a story. And so some people call this the parable of the Good Samaritan, and many of you know this story, but it's just the story of the Good Samaritan. This could have been pulled. This is something that could have happened. Uh, they could have a reference to this, uh, but essentially they all understood that he was telling a story about someone and what happens to them. Verse 30, and it says, In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. Now this would have resonated with them. They would have heard stories about this kind of thing happening all the time. Jericho, uh, I'm sorry, Jerusalem was a city on a hill, right? It's about 3,000, 
feet, the, the, the road from uh, Jericho or Jerusalem to Jericho, the decline. It's about 17 miles, and over that 17 miles, you, de- you actually descend about 3,000 feet. So as you're walking that path, there's times where you come on, like, there's steep cliff faces, and you're in kind of a perilous position. It's a bad neighborhood for people who have a fear of getting robbed because it's highly likely that you would. Now, some of you may know, I don't know the area around here that well yet, but there's a couple of streets, I'm sure, that those are the areas you just don't hang out after dark because bad stuff's going on. In, in my neighborhood growing up in the Bay Area, we had a street. It was called Sycamore. And if you went down Sycamore, like, during the day, but especially at night, you basically deserved whatever bad thing happened to you. And something bad was going to happen to you. It'd probably start with a conversation like this. Hey, bro, nice shoes. You know you just lost those shoes. They're gone. It'd be better to just take them off and run because there's nothing you can do to keep your shoes at that point, right? And, and I don't know what the street is, the neighborhood is and around here, but we, we all know those kind of neighborhoods. There's just a place where if you go into that place at the wrong time or without the right backup or without your crew, whatever it is, you're just bad things are going to happen. They understood that on this road to Jericho, bad things could happen to you. All right. You wanted to go during the day. You wanted to make sure that you had your entourage around you. I mean, you just it was normal for for bad things to happen. It was a place, a hangout where thugs just did thug things. And it says uh, I'm still in verse 30. It says they stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and they went away, leaving him half dead. They took his shoes. What a great illustration. They're like, hey, nice shoes. They took him. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him up. The scriptures say he was half dead. He's on the side of the road. I was thinking about how important it was that they took his garments and things like that from him. They took his identifying marks. They took his, this is how I know his ethnicity, his culture, where he's from. This is the kind of garments that he wears. This is who he is. Now he's just a bloodied, naked dude on the side of the road. It could be anybody from a politician to a peasant. could be anybody. He's just on the side of the road. He's fallen into the hands of robbers. He doesn't have his ID. He doesn't have, you know, his papers. He doesn't have his citizenship stuff. He doesn't have anything. He's just on the side of the road, beaten. Verse 31. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, it's interesting that Jesus chose these two illustrations because a priest and a Levite are both associated with temple worship, which would have been heroes to this teacher of the law. They would have been authoritative figures. They would have been people who literally handled the temple worship or assisted with the elements of temple worship. These were people who would twice a day be saying the very thing that this guy just said was the answer to inheriting eternal life, that they love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that they love their neighbor as themselves. These are people who clearly would be professionals at knowing this information, and they see someone in distress, and Jesus says they simply pass by on the other side. Now, you can read commentaries that say all kinds of things. Some will say, well, you know, it's scary to get involved for somebody like a priest because, you know, sometimes that could, uh, the robbers could still be laying in wait. And so if you help them, you know, they, you, you might be set, it might be a setup. Someone might try and get you. Or that, you know, maybe he could have been dead. And, you know, if you touch the dead body at that culture, it'd be ceremoniously, un- ceremonially unclean. And so that could mess up his priestly duties and his timetables. But here's the reality. They were busy. And stopping to help somebody in need wasn't a priority at the time. And we all can relate to that. We all get busy. 
the phone rings and we're just about to go do something and you see the caller ID and you're like, oh, I know what this person needs. And you're just like, bleep, over to voicemail, call him tomorrow, right? That's what they do to this guy. They're like, bleep. They, you know, they don't, they don't accept the call. They're just like, nope, I'm not going to deal with that. You're driving by and you see a family, you know, mom and a couple kids and they got a flat tire and she's holding a baby on the side of the road and you look over there and you're moved to compassion. You're like, Jesus, send somebody, but Starbucks, you know, and you're, you're cruising. That's what these guys do. That's exactly what these guys do. And this guy knows that Jesus is talking about his heroes, the people he looks up to, the people who are involved in temple worships, the people who are involved in leading the people to a place of holiness, to a place of being more like God. And Jesus is saying, these two guys see the plight, see the distress, and they walk on by. They cruise by on the other side. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, everybody go, ooh, a Samaritan, Ooh, right? They didn't like these guys. As he traveled, he came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Let's stop for just a second there. I think that we miss, we hear the term Samaritan, and we think about hospitals. We think about Good Samaritan Hospital, Samaritan's per like, like uh, it just has a real positive connotation in our culture today because people have adopted this component of this story and made that something positive. But in his culture, at his time, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. All right? Samaritans were the enemy. The Jewish culture at this time had legitimate and seriously deep racial hatred towards the Samaritans. Racial deep hatred. And it went back 700 years. Hundreds of years of hating them. What happened, uh, the short version of a really long story, the kingdom uh, uh, got split in two. You had the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom uh, of Israel, and Judah's in the south, and, and uh, the, the ten tribes are up in the north. The ten tribes, they get wiped out by Assyria, and uh, eventually what Assyria did when they wiped out the tribes is they brought like a whole cosmopolitan of backgrounds and ethnicities and culture, and they basically just kind of made your culture go away by marrying you and uh and adopting you into their culture and so the northern tribes much of their culture had just kind of gotten uh uh, uh just assimilated into this assyrian culture about 150 years after that uh, the king of babylon comes in and wipes out the southern culture and takes them all into exile and then you have the story of nehemiah building the wall and ezra calling the people back and and you so you guys know where i'm at a little bit some of you and so essentially this this small population about 14,000 jews they come back and they start rebuilding jerusalem and nehemiah is leading this thing and they're building a wall and these people show up and they start to abuse the jews that are building the wall saying you can't do that and and you're you're you know they're, they're opposing them that's the samaritans it's a half mixed culture version of the jewish culture that has adopted other things and assimilated them they've moved the place of worship away from jerusalem and they've done all these things and so for hundreds and hundreds of years there is a racial hatred between these jews and these samaritans okay so when jesus is answering the who question he intentionally picks the person the group of people who this guy would have the most just tension, racial hatred towards. Genuine. You know why? Because the who question was not a good question. So he's, he's blowing this guy up. All right? 
And so he has probably never heard the words good and Samaritan in the same sentence, unless it's like the only good Samaritan is the, you know, whatever Samaritan, you know, like some negative thing, right? So, so, so being a Samaritan, and it says the Samaritan saw him, and this is what gets me moving. It says he took pity on him. Now, I was thinking about that word pity. I actually looked it up. I did some word study stuff and realized that it's a word I can't pronounce. So I won't try to say it. But the word there for, for pity, it has the connotation of in his bowels he yearned to help. I want you to think about that for a second. In your bowels. I like that it's in your bowels. It's like in your guts. Right? Did you ever see something? Someone in need, some something that wasn't just wasn't right, and it hit you right in the gut. And you were just like, oh, that's not just. That's not right. That's not okay. That violates on my inside what I care about and who I am. And it's like, oh, it hits you right in the guts. That's what happens to this guy. He sees this man on the side of the road. He's naked. He's beaten. He's just been left there. He's seen the footprints of people walking around him and avoiding him. And the scripture says, Jesus says, it hit him right in the guts. And he took pity on him. And look at his response. Verse 34 says he went to him. And he bandaged his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey. He took him to an inn to take care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins, essentially a day's wage, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses that you may have. I want you to look for just a moment at just how far he goes. He doesn't just bandage him up. He knows this guy's going to need some recovery time. He knows he's without wallet, without ID, without means. There's no cell phones. He's going to need some help to get back on his feet again. So he takes him, not just bandaging his wounds, but takes him to a place where he can recover. And then he goes to the innkeeper and he says, here's some money up front. And if anything else is an expense, you let me know. And next time I come through, I'll cover it. He says, this guy's going to need, I mean, he can't just go and get food. He's going to need breakfast in bed. He's going to need, you know, to recover. And he says, I just, I don't know about you, but I started thinking about how much it really is to just support a guy, like, eating out and being in a hotel room for a couple days. I'm like, like, that's a pretty good investment to just pour into a guy you just met on the side of the road. I don't know how you roll, but that would be outside of my, like, without a phone call to the princess, making sure that this was an okay, you know what I mean? Like, I, 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 we'd have to figure that out. In my heart, I'd want to be that generous, but I'd have to think about it for a minute to process that. And he goes to a point for this individual where he actually feels it he gives them not just the resource but he gives them his time verse 36 jesus is still talking he looks at this lawyer and he goes hey which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers the expert in the law and i love this he doesn't say the samaritan right he can't even like his mouth doesn't even want to form those words that's just it's just not going to happen right the expert in the law says, the one who had mercy on him. The one who had mercy on him. And Jesus, once more, once more just kind of to put an exclamation mark, go and do that. Go and do likewise. It's an action. He says, hey, this love that you're talking about, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself, you know what that is? That kind of love is a verb. It's an action. 
It's something that you do. It requires something of you. It's not a feeling, right? It's not a feel really deeply about God and and your neighbors. That's not what he's talking about. He's like, it's an action. It's a do. Go and do. How do you love God? You do it. How do you love your neighbor? You do it. Just do it. That's what he's saying. Just do it. You can see his perspiration. Do it. Go do it. That's what you're asking me. Just go do it. So I read this story, and I look at my life, and one word comes to mind. Brutal. Brutal. Jesus, that is way too high to set the bar. I feel crummy in my guts. (laughs) This story hits me in the guts. How do I actually do this? I want to do it. I want to do what you're saying. I want to be that guy. But how? Because I look outside and, and there's just too much. There's too many needs. I can't meet all those needs. If I stop every time someone holds a, sand, a sign up at a corner and every single time I give everything I have and I take care of them for two days, I'll last about four days. Then I'll be out there dependent on you guys to do the same thing. Right? I don't have the means. I don't have the time. I don't have the resource. I can't do this, Jesus. How do I do it? How do I do it? So I wrestle with that. Let's pray. No, I'm kidding. Well, kidding. <laughs> it was a little thick in the room, so I thought I'd just lighten it up a little bit. So we look at the scriptures and we say, how, God, how, how do you paint this picture for us? How do you help us to get to the place where we're doing what you've called us to do? If you want to flip over with me, I'll flip it on the screen to Galatians chapter 6. I'm, I'm going to help make this something we can do. I told you to be practical today. Galatians chapter 6, beginning of verse 9. Paul, he's writing Galatians, and you, you just got to know Galatians is all about battling people who are uh, trying to be very legalistic in their faith. It's all about trying to battle legalism. You know, got to do this, but you can't do this. Got to do this, but you can't do this. Galatians is all about. Chapter 6, verse 9, Paul says something, and he just crushes it right here and helps us get it. He says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Verse 10, therefore, as we have what? Ah, okay. That makes a little more sense. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Paul says, not every time, but as you have opportunity, when it's you that gets hit in the guts, when it's you and your moment to feel that, when you're feeling it deeply and the opportunity has arisen, respond to that. Don't get so weary that you don't have any margin in your life to keep doing good. Because if you do, in due time, you will reap a harvest. You know, I think we can get tired just feeling pounded on to keep doing more good things. We can feel exhausted. It's discouraging. Eventually, we shut down and we hit like cruise control. Like that's the max I can do. It happens in relationships. It happens in churches, right? I've, I've served as much as I can serve. I'm done. I'm so glad there's a new pastor here. His turn to run. He can get some new people to do this stuff because I've been doing this forever. And I, come on, some of you are thinking that. Having that conversations at home, just like, I'm going to give them like three more weeks 
And then he's going to hear from me that I'm tired, right? And that's okay. I'm, I'm with you. We could be honest, right? We can be honest. That's okay. But it happens to us. We get weary. We get tired. It's time and time again. And we're like, oh, it's a grind. And how do we do this? And Paul's like, listen, don't get weary for doing the thing you're designed to do, which is good. Don't get weary of that. Don't. Because when you pursue through that, you'll reap a harvest if you don't give up. So as we have opportunity, read time. Let us do good to all people, especially those who belong in the family of believers. You know, you ever do all of the grunt work on a job and then someone gets to come in and get like the glory moment at the end and they get all the credit? Yeah. Some of you are in danger of that right now. You've been grinding it out and the harvest has come in. And you're ready to cash in your chips and take a break. And then the glory moment's going to hum. And someone else is going to be like, look at all this fruit. And you're like, oh, I was there. So just, you know, just hang in there with me for a little while. Just don't tap out on me just yet, okay? We're going to get there. The harvest is coming. It's going to be exciting. I'm so pumped. I'm so pumped. But I don't know. That was just a freebie. <laughs> don't give up. <laughs> Let us do good to all people, especially. Paul says there's a proper time. We'll reap a harvest. And as we have opportunity, let's do good to all people. I love um, in Proverbs seventeen twenty four says, A discerning person keeps wisdom in view, but a fool's eyes wander to the end of the earth. This proverb wrecks me because I wander to the ends of the earth. I naturally go, listen, if I help someone, I'm going to have to help everyone. Ever had that conversation? Listen, I can't give you this because I give it to you. I'm going to have to do the same thing for everyone, right? If I come over and help you move, the next time someone else calls, I'm going to have to help them move. So I'm not helping anybody move. I don't have that kind of time, right? Uh, some, of you, some of you that hit a little bit close to home. Okay, I'll move on. But, but here's the thing. I think that we become, we become victims to the tyranny of fairness. We think that we can't do something unless we can do it for everyone so that it's fair, and we think, okay, well, since I can't, when I get to a place when I can do something for everyone, then I'll do something. And you know what we do? We do nothing for anyone because it's the fairest thing we can do. Who told you you had to be fair? Who told you that life was fair? You look at people all the time and say, life ain't fair. Right? You post it on your Facebook accounts. Life ain't fair. All the time. Yet someone says, hey, Here's a need that you could help meet. And you're like, oh, no, that would, that would stretch me too far because then this and then this and this and then, you know, everyone's going to expect something like it's fair. You don't have to be fair. Why do you have to be fair? Show me in the scriptures where it says you have to be fair. It doesn't tell me that this guy kept going down the road and every single person that he met, he paid for two nights stay at the Ritz and paid all their food. and did it. He didn't do that for every single person that he met. Who did he do it for? The person in front of him that stirred a need in his guts. And when he was moved in his guts to do something, he responded. Didn't say anything about being fair. I look at the scriptures and I had this idea growing up that basically God was fair. And I started looking through. I'm like, if God was fair, then I'd be six something with a great singing voice. Right. And all my hair. But God's not fair. He's not fair. He's not interested in being fair. He's just. And justice is something he cares about a lot. But fairness doesn't seem to drive him at all. 
My life ain't fair. I don't know about yours. So why are we frozen by fairness from helping people? But it happens all the time. It happens all the time. You knew this when you were a kid. When you went up to the teacher and you're like, can I go use the restroom? And they're like, no, because if I let you go, I have to let everyone go. No, you don't. You could just let me go. And when the next person goes, you can say no. It's not like someone's holding a gun to your head saying, now you've got to let everyone go. Or You don't. You know that you, you I, listen, you don't even want the world to be fair. Here's how I know you don't want to be the world to be fair. Have you ever been pulled over and got a warning? Yeah. That was awesome, right? So is that guy, that police officer's responsibility now to every single person he ever pulls over to give a warning? To be fair? No. I'm so glad that several times I've had wonderful members of law enforcement give me a reminder and send me on my way. It happened to me twice in one trip. I was twice reminded. And thank you, Jesus and officer or whatever, for not being fair. I don't want him to be fair. That's awful. How about this? You got like three tickets to something, but four friends that want to go. Oh, well, guess nobody goes. No. You call friend number four and be like, sorry, dude. It's not going to work out this time. Let's do something else some other time. Fairness isn't that important, but fairness paralyzes us because we think, oh, man, if I stop and I give something to that person, I got to do something for everyone. It's not true. It's not true. Jesus says there was someone in his path and it stirred him in his guts. And so he responded. What's in your path that's stirring you in your guts? Some of you, it's not even a person. It's just something that you see every week when you come here. You see something and you're like, oh, why don't they fix this? Why don't they? I don't know who they is. Apparently they is probably me now. (laughs) When you're saying that. Why doesn't he fix that? Start saying he, right? Then we can have a conversation. Why don't they do it? Can I just kind of throw out there for you? You probably don't have the spiritual gift of criticism. I don't see that in the scripture. If you see something that you don't like, it's probably your gut saying, here's a thing that I see that I can meet that need. It's probably the spirit's kind of stirring on you. Hey, maybe if you see it and other people don't seem to see it, you were probably designed to be a part of that, that fix. And the kingdom needs all kinds of skill sets. There are some people that when they see a room, they just immediately know if that room is clean enough or not. They just know, right? And there's some people who are in a room and they're just like, that room's fine. I don't care. Like, we're just doing work in here. You want to know how to, if you're one, okay, here's, here's how you know if you're in the first group. Look in the backseat of your car. If the backseat of your car is like immaculate, you're one of those people who, when you see a room, you see all the details of, you know, every little paper clip that's on the floor. And if you're in the, if you don't even know what the back of your car looks like, you're, you know, you're one of me. And that's cool, right? But, but because you see that and it drives you crazy, and why don't they? Ah, you were designed. You see that. You could meet that need. It's in your guts. Do it. I'm, you know, do it. You have that gift. A discerning person keeps wisdom in view, but a fool's eyes wander to the ends of the earth. What is the thing that's in view? What's the thing that's in front of you? Who's the person? Who's the family? Some of you have been married. We just celebrated 17 years of marriage yesterday. Amazing. Pretty exciting. 
only 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 once in those 17 years, twice now, have I not been at summer camp when that happened. So it was kind of cool to like be home for my anniversary. I didn't even know what to do. Uh, this is bizarre, but uh, but really excited about that. Um, but anyway, some of you have been married for like 30 plus years, and there are couples in this church right now who would benefit so greatly from having a friend that had been married for 30 plus years that could just say, hey, you can make it. Come have dinner with us every once in a while. Tell us your story and we'll tell you. Man, and you just designed to do that. That's something that's in your, and it's in your guts and you could do that. You could pour into somebody. That's something that it could stir in your guts. You could do that. Some of you, your, your whole life you've thought, man, I should get involved in youth ministry in some way because, you know, that, that season of my life, it was so important and God really moved and, or I really blew it in that season of my life. And if someone would have just told me what I knew now and, 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 and it's in your guts and you should do that and you should get involved and you should dive in. And it's, it's like that thing that just keeps itching in the back of your brain whenever you sit down and think about, you know, I wish I just had the margin, the time to do that one thing and it's in you. But I can't because, oh, all of this. Proverbs tells us, mm-hmm. don't let your eyes wander the ends of the earth. Keep the things in view. Keep wisdom. A discerning person keeps that wisdom in view. I heard a, a pastor say this, and it rocked me. It changed my whole perspective on this. And, and uh, it, it, I mean, it's not original to me. I wish it was because it's amazing. But he said it this way. He said, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. You hear that? Do for someone what you wish you could do for everyone. I wish that every person that I saw in need, I could just make their day. I could bring them a Bible. I could talk to them about Jesus. I can make sure they had food. I could give them a shower. I wish that every single person I, that I saw I could do that. And I can't. But when the spirit gets in my guts and I see a need, it's okay to do for one what I wish I could do for everyone okay when i was youth pastoring in spokane there was a girl and uh she was you know sixth seventh grade girl and uh she was one of those quiet real quiet no not too many friends just you know didn't didn't have a lot in her family but she started coming to youth group and i was always compassionate towards the the one that just doesn't immediately fall into the popular circle you know popular circle is important to carry on too but but she didn't fit it was clear there was something going on and I remember she came to some event or whatever, and I got a chance to get a little bit of her story. And, you know, in a very kind of emotional moment, she just shared that, you know, her home life wasn't very good. And she was afraid to make friends because she didn't want them to know about her home life and what was going on. And you know, I prayed with her, talked with her. She was in my life. I began to try to figure out ways to help her get involved. She kind of became someone I was just like, I'm, she's not getting left behind. So I would bring her in like before youth group and let her do administrative stuff. Turns out she had a real good administrative gift. She would come in and clean the office and organize things and do paperwork and just get things ready. I remember she went through one of my desk drawers and it had, you know, back when you had to like handwrite sermons and things like that. And it just had like just papers just walled. And she's like, can I fix this for you? And I was like, yeah, go ahead. And, you know, she began to do all those kinds of things. Well, after about a year... It was uh, about, I don't know, 1 o'clock in the morning in the winter night, uh, freezing cold in Spokane, and there's this pounding on my door. So I wake up Christine, and we don't have any kids yet, and come downstairs, and here's this girl in pajamas. No shoes on her feet. I mean, it's ice on the floor. And she's run from her home about probably two miles 
to get to my house saying, I don't know what to do. Violence in my home, threats with guns. What can I do? Now listen, I don't open my house to every single person that I ever youth pastored. But I said, hey, this place is going to be safe. You come here. You can stay here as long as you need. And she came and, you know, we called her parents and we called the police. And, you know, she stayed with us for a little while. Mom and dad split. Stepdad ended up keeping custody of her while mom did crazy things. And, and uh, pretty soon she's about 16, 17, and that situation's not going to work. And so I work with a person in the church to find her a permanent place to live outside of her house. And she works there or lives there. I help her find a job and I get her connected into a, a job. And, I, and I, I go on about a six-year journey of just helping her. Every time I can help her, she's just, I'm just helping her. Now, I couldn't do that for everyone. If I did that for everyone, we had 100, 140 in the group at times. If I did that for 100, 140 students, I'd be white. That's, I couldn't do it. But this girl was in need and something triggered in my guts and we helped her. Eventually, I did her premarital counseling and her wedding. She married a, a guy who's a scientist, and she went to school and became a teacher. And she's adopted a couple kids now, and she's living great. And, and when I planted a church, her and her husband, while they were going to school, sent the first check for $2,000. The first check. Now, listen, I'm, we've seen a lot of checks come through, but probably never a check that hit me in the guts. Like that hit me in the guts because that was a life that turned around. Like I could do that for everyone. I don't have that kind of resource for everyone. In church world, there's more needs more often than you could ever imagine. And we can only do so much. You can only do so much. But you can do for someone what you wish you could do for everyone. I'm going to show you just a quick video and then we'll close it up. One day, a man was walking along the beach when he noticed a boy picking up starfish and throwing them into the ocean. Approaching the boy, he asked, Excuse me, but what are you doing? The boy replied, Throwing starfish back into the ocean. The sun is rising and the tide is going out. If I don't throw them back, they'll die. The man laughed to himself and said, But there's too many starfish on this beach. You can't possibly make a difference. After listening politely, the boy bent down, picked up another starfish, and threw it into the ocean. Then turning to the man, he said, I made a difference to that one. You know, I heard the story, the little parable of the starfish a lot of times. Pastor Andrew this morning was great. He, he added to it. He said, an amazing thing in our journey is we bless the one and then they bless another. And it's like the starfish start coming back on the beach and throwing themselves back into the ocean. And, and all the heaven breaks loose. And that's amazing. And it's true. But something just struck me as I was wrapping this up in my heart was that 
I never want to get so paralyzed by the, the ginormous nature of what Jesus says that I don't do anything. I want to be known as someone who did something. And it might fail. It might bite me. I may help someone and it may go sideways. But someday I want to stand in front of Jesus and say, hey, I just did what I could. I couldn't help everyone, but when you brought me that person, I helped them. And there were times when I was in the intersection and I didn't even see somebody's need. But there were times when I did. And when I did, I got out of the car and I pushed them somewhere safe or I called for help or I stayed with them or whatever it is. There were things that I, I knew I was supposed to serve in. And I didn't, I didn't let the idea of, well, if I say I'll help, then they may need more than I can give. I didn't let that paralyze me. I just did what I could do. I want to stand before Jesus and say, I, I just did all I could. I want that to be my story. I want that to be your story. Jesus looks at this guy. He says, just go and do it. Paul says, hey, don't get tired. Don't get weary. Proverbs tells us, don't look so far away that it paralyzes you. Wisdom looks in front of you. What are the things you know you can do? What are the things you're designed to do? What are the ways you can make a difference? You. You're part of the body of Christ here on earth. For some reason, when you stepped out in faith and made a decision for him, he didn't just vacuum you straight into heaven and start the party. He left you here to do something. You matter. You may not matter in the sense that you may not do for a thousand people or 10,000 people, but you may matter to one. You know, sometimes I think we try to go wide instead of deep. And this guy goes deep. He takes care of his needs. Sometimes we try to just give money instead of time. Isn't it easier? Like, just take an offering, Mike, and I'll throw something in it, and then I don't have to feel this way about this responsibility that I have to, to do something for the kingdom. Money is not the answer. Your time is the answer. There's a couple out there that needs your time. There's a student out there that needs your time. There's a guy out there that needs your time. A couple hundred bucks isn't going to change this world, but a couple hours might. Sometimes we just got to go deeper. Sometimes we've got to give our time. Sometimes we got to go long term. This six year investment with this teenager. There was no return on that investment in the moment. There was a lot of pain and late night crying and, you know, moved, moved, we moved her out of her house in the cover of night. Like we rolled in with a truck and a team of guys and we got all her stuff and we put her somewhere safe. Like it was that kind of environment. But it was long term. Sometimes we miss the fruit because we get weary and we give up. Paul says, don't do that. In due time, you'll reap a harvest if you don't give up. Let's pray. God, thanks for rocking us. Thanks for taking this giant thing of life that you've left us with and making it make sense in our worldview. Help us to love the one we're with, the person you put in front of us, the person who it stirs us in our guts. Help us to get involved in the, in the thing that it stirred us in our guts to get involved in. Help us to have eyes to be on the lookout to see what you see. 
I never want to be the person who looks good on the outside but moves around people's needs because I can't be bothered. God, I know I can't help everyone, but I can help someone. Help us to be that kind of difference maker. To simply love the person you put in front of us.